Good morning, New Life. Uh, it's so good to be with you today. Um, and just like I said last week, I consider it a huge honor to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, what an awesome privilege. Uh, well, friends, we're looking today at the first 17 verses of this glorious letter from Paul to the Romans. Um, chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. So please, I encourage you to keep your Bible open there. We're going to go through this together and see what it says. Uh, before we do that, why don't we pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word. Why don't you pray and ask God to speak to you? And why don't you pray for um, other church members tuning in from wherever they might be, that God would speak to them as well? Um, and then I'll pray. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We thank you that it is life and light to us. Lord, please help us now to understand what this portion of your word is saying to us. Help us, Lord, to understand the logic of what Paul writes here and help us to understand its implication for our lives today. Help us, Lord, uh, empowered by your spirit to put it into practice what we hear from your scriptures today. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Uh, for most people, life just kind of happens. Life just kind of happens. There's no real overarching purpose to life for most people. No driving force. There's usually no great passion about life. Life just kind of presents itself to us and we just deal with whatever happens in life, one thing after the next. You go to school because your parents tell you to, and for some of us, if you didn't get into a selective school, you get disowned. And if your parents push you hard enough, which is uh, many of us, you end up at university. Our Asian immigrant society says that going to uni is a normal thing to do, so that's a normal thing we do. We go through high school, we get into uni, we leave uni, and we find a job. You get a job, you get yourself a mortgage. And at that point, you say hello to your new slave master for the next 40 years. You go to work every day and every week, you look forward to Friday night. When the time comes, you meet someone, and you get married, and you have kids. And then you push them hard to follow the same path that you followed. Eventually, you fall over the line into retirement. Generally speaking, if you're a man, you're dead within a year or two. Otherwise, you just wait to die. That's life for most people. Um, a few years ago in our country, consultants did a management report on the Department of Community Services, or DOCS, uh, which is today called Department of Communities and Justice. Um, so these consultants, they did their research and they did their consulting, and they did a management report on the Department of Community Services, analyzing their management strategy, how they went about their job day to day, and they came to the conclusion that the management strategy of the Department of Community Services was, and I quote, running from one emergency to the next. Running from one emergency to the next. And church, I reckon that's how most people live their lives. 
you always seem to be busy. We're somehow always exhausted, but there's no great overarching purpose. We're just running from one emergency to the next. There's no great passion about our lives generally. Once in a while, you might get excited about a game of basketball or a game of football, or once in a while, you get some thrill from an imaginary movie or a Netflix series or something like that. But for the rest, for most of us, life just passes you by. There's nothing really to live for. There's nothing really to drive you. There are some people who are exceptions. You see some artists. They're passionate about painting or music or creating something. And they give up everything in their life for their one passion. Or you see some elite sports people. They've got the one goal, get that gold medal, win that championship, and everything else in their life is submitted under their passion. There are exceptions, but for the most part, for most people, life just happens. No great purpose, no great urgency, billions of people just running the rat race on that hamster treadmill. For most people, no great passion, no great purpose. Well, friends, today we're looking at the beginning section of Paul's letter to the Romans, that is, the church in Rome. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, and today we're looking together at the introduction to that letter, the, pair, the, the part where Paul greets his readers. And right from the start, we can see Paul's life is in stark contrast to the lives of most people, because Paul's life is filled with passion. Uh, one Bible scholar puts it, Paul is consumed by passion. Paul's whole life is driven by one overriding purpose. You can see it there in the very first verse of this letter where Paul introduced himself. I mean, uh, how do most people introduce themselves? They talk about their name and what they do, maybe something about their family, and maybe where they come from, right? That's a standard introduction. Hi, I'm David Chen. I'm an accountant from Hong Kong married with one daughter. There's your standard introduction. For me, I say, hi, I'm Matt Kang. And people say, aren't you Jane's husband? Uh, but that's my life. We define our identity in certain ways. But have a look at how Paul defines his identity. Look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Look at how Paul defines his identity. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Look at how Paul defines his identity. He says, who is he? Verse 1, he's a servant of Jesus. He's a slave of Christ, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. Here is a guy who defines his whole identity by a reference to a man named Jesus. He defines his whole identity by reference to a message called the gospel. And in the next few verses, Paul outlines what he means when he says gospel. He tells us a few things about this thing that he calls the gospel. First, he says this gospel was promised in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Then Paul goes to talk about what the gospel is about. It's about God's son, God's human son, descended from King David in the Old Testament. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, the gospel, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. 
Now, a quick side note, you might remember King David from the Old Testament. He comes out in a lot of places, a very significant character in the Old Testament. You might remember that God actually made a lot of great promises to King David, like the promise that one of his descendants, King David's descendants, would be God's very own son. One of David's descendants would be the ruler, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And we see that promise in Psalm 2, because in Psalm 2, uh, verse 7 and 8, he says, He said to me, you are my son, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Well, according to this gospel that Paul talks about, those promises have come true. God has declared Jesus is the powerful son of God. God has declared this by raising Jesus from the dead, and so this gospel tells us that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the chosen king that God has chosen, the Son of God. He is God's chosen king. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the Lord, that he is our Lord, our boss, our master. Look at verse 4. And was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul means when he says gospel. It's the good news about Jesus, about how he died and rose again in fulfillment of the Scriptures. The gospel is the message about how God has made him, Jesus, our boss, our master. And for Paul, this message has profound implications. It defines who he is. Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a slave of Jesus. Moreover, I'm set apart for his gospel, his good news. And he goes on to say that it's changed his whole life. Because of Jesus, Paul has quit his job. Because of Jesus, Paul has left his home. Because of Jesus, Paul travels around telling people to believe and to obey King Jesus. Look with me at verse 5. Through him, Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. This gospel has completely and radically changed Paul's life. It's flipped it inside out. It's turned it upside down. But as far as Paul's concerned, it's not just for him. It's also for the people in Rome, the Christians that he's writing to. They've been called to the same obedience that comes from faith as well. They've been called to have Jesus as their Lord. And so, look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. And so then he goes on to greet them. He wishes them grace and peace from God. But notice, notice how he describes them. Again, it's all in terms of Jesus and the gospel. He says... They have been loved by God. He says they've been called to be saints. The word they're saints, by the way, it doesn't mean extra special Christians. It just means Christians. But he's trying to explain that Christians are special. They're holy. They've been set apart by God. They've been called by God to be holy. Look with me at verse 7. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, can you see Paul's passion 
Even here in this introduction, can you see how his own identity is defined by the gospel and the identity of his readers? How he thinks of other people. He thinks of them in terms of the gospel as well. And as he goes on, we see more and more of his passion. Paul goes on to talk about how he's been praying for these Romans. He says he's been praying for them, thanking God for their faith, thanking God that their faith is getting known everywhere. He says that he's been praying that he can come to see them so that they can encourage each other, so that they can help each other stand firm as Christians. Look with me at verse 8 to 12. Verse 8 to 12. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Do you see his passion? I mean, to start with, he is praying. He actually does it. And notice, he's not just praying every now and then when he happens to remember, when he feels like it. He says he's constantly in prayer, verse 9. Morning, noon, and night. Here is a man of prayer. And notice, Paul prays for specific people. Notice that he's praying gospel-centered prayers for specific people. He's thanking God that they're Christians. He's praying for an opportunity to encourage them as Christians. Paul is filled with passion for Jesus and his gospel. In verse 9, did you notice? He talks about his wholehearted service. Uh, when our CSB Bible translation says, quote, whom I serve with my spirit, it's saying that Paul is serving with his whole heart, his full being. He is very, very devoted to this. He's gone all in. He's full in with this. Verse 11 he talks about how he longs to see the Romans so that he can encourage them. Quote, he wants very much to see you. New Life, I wonder, do you long very much to see your church family so that you can encourage them? Here is a man who is passionate. His passion drives his prayers but Paul hasn't just prayed about these things. He's also been making specific plans as well, specific plans. Paul has been plotting and planning and scheming and writing things down. Paul has been lying awake at night, working out how he can put into practice his gospel passion. Look with me at verse 13. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul plans his life around Jesus and the gospel. His work plans, his travel plans, they all flow from his passion for the gospel. He's doing what he can to use his gifts to help other Christians. He's doing what he can to share the gospel with non-Christians and is deliberate about it. It's not random. It's not to his convenience. He's deliberate. He's intentional. There's an intentionality about how Paul lives out the gospel in his life. He makes 
plans. He sits down with a pen and paper or ink and parchment, whatever he had. He sits down and he thinks carefully and he makes plans on how he's going to do it. It's pretty full on, isn't it? Paul defines himself by reference to Jesus. He prays gospel prayers. He plans gospel plans. His whole life is consumed by passion, passion for Jesus and the gospel. Why? Paul, why all this passion? Paul goes on to tell us the reason. He says that he is obligated. He's got an obligation, like a debt of some kind. He owes it. He says he's under obligation, and that's why he's so eager to tell people about Jesus. Look at me at verse 14, 15. Verse 14, 15. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, that's non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's passion flows from an obligation. It's like a debt. And in the next verse, he explains why he's obligated. It's because of the nature of the gospel. He's obligated because of the very nature of the gospel. Paul says it's because the gospel is able to save people, because the gospel is able to rescue people, that's why I'm obligated. Look with me at verse 16. He talks about this is why he's obligated, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. How? How is the gospel able to save people? He goes on to tell us that God reveals his righteousness in the gospel. Not just his own righteousness, God actually gives righteousness to people. He pardons people who put their faith in Jesus, who depend on Jesus, who rely on Jesus, who cling to Jesus. God declares them innocent, blameless, righteous. God, the great judge, declares them, those who put their faith in Jesus, he declares them innocent so that they can stand righteous before him, before God. Look with me at verse 17. The gospel is God's powerful salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament to back up what he's saying. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Friends, it's a little bit dense, uh, these last couple of verses, but it's important that we understand them because these couple of verses here, they give us the reason why Paul lived the life he did. They give us the reason why he's so passionate. Let me run you backwards through the logic of these verses. If you're taking notes, let me run you backwards and just listen to the logic of what Paul's saying. Verse 17, in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. He forgives and he pardons us. That means... Verse 16, the gospel is God's powerful way of rescuing us from his anger, rescuing us from his righteous and holy judgment. And so, verse 16, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 15, he's eager to preach the gospel. Verse 15, in fact, verse 14, he's even obligated to tell people about Jesus. Can you see the logic here? 
the saving nature of the gospel produces an obligation in Paul. It's a little bit like if you got the cure for cancer. Think about it. Imagine with me for a moment. Imagine if someone comes up to you one day and gives you a piece of paper and they say, here's the cure for cancer. It's written on this page. Here you go. You receive it. You've got it there. It's in your hands. It can save people's lives, millions. It can save millions of family members from horrendous grief. You've got it there in your hands. A cure for cancer. It's, it can save people's lives. What are you going to do? Would it be right to say, oh, that's great. Thanks very much. This will come in really handy if I ever get cancer. I'll pop it away in my filing cabinet back at home. You can't do that. You can't do that, right? That's not right. If you get the cure for cancer, it comes with an obligation, does it not? You're obligated to share this good news with everyone who needs it. And Paul's working with the same kind of logic here. The gospel is God's powerful way of saving people. Not just saving their lives physically, but saving their eternal lives for an eternity. And Paul reckons that makes him obligated. And that is why Paul is so passionate about the gospel. That's why it's transformed everything in his life. That's why it's turned his life upside down. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he's eager to preach the gospel. That's why he plans gospel plans. That's why he prays gospel prayers. That's why even when he describes himself, he describes himself as a slave of Jesus set apart for the gospel. Now, there's no doubt about it. Paul is a unique individual, for sure. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He, he saw physically the risen Lord Jesus. The risen Jesus himself commissioned Paul to be a preacher and a missionary. Paul, obviously, is a unique and a special individual. But New Life, I reckon that the logic of these verses must apply to us as well. Paul says he's obligated to preach the gospel. Why? Not because he's an apostle, not because he saw Jesus, but because of the gospel itself. Because he knows that the gospel itself is God's powerful way of saving people. Paul doesn't say he's obligated because of his special commission or his special calling. He doesn't say that he's unique in this obligation. No, no. The saving nature of the gospel itself, it produces an obligation in him. And that's got to apply to you and me as well. Christians, that's got to apply to you and me as well. It must apply to you and me because the same gospel that Paul's on about is the same gospel that you and I have received and that we stand on. New Life, let me ask you right now. Do you believe that the gospel can save people? I'm asking you right now. Not the person next to you, not someone else in some other suburb. I'm asking you, you right now. Do you believe that the gospel can actually save people from God's righteous judgment? Secondly, let me ask you, have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus? If you've answered yes to both those questions, then you need to know you're in the exact same position 
as Apostle Paul. You've got the cure for cancer, so to speak. It doesn't just obligate him. It obligates you. It obligates me. We owe it to a world that is facing God's righteous and holy anger to tell them about Jesus because he's the only way they can be saved. We owe it to a world that is facing eternal death to tell them about Jesus because he is the only way they can have eternal life. We, Christians, owe it to them. The gospel obligates us. If you really think about this, if you really get this, this is life-changing stuff. You cannot believe this and go away ordinary and go away unchanged. You cannot believe this and just give nodding acquaintance to it. It doesn't work like that. If this is right, if this is the truth of God, and if we are actually Christians, and if we actually have the gospel, then we have got an obligation that should fill us, that should fill us with passion and turn our lives upside down and flip our lives inside out. It should radically change our lives. So, let's think about it. Applications. What does this mean for you and me today as Christians? How does this passage speak to how you and I live in this day and age? Well, for Paul, the gospel defines who he is. He's a servant of Jesus. He's a slave of Jesus. Who are you? How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself by what you do? Do you see yourself as a teacher or a social worker or a lawyer? Do you see yourself as an analyst or a uni student or whatever you are? Or perhaps do you define yourself by your family? Are you first and foremost a single person or a husband or a mum? Is that where you define your identity? Because if we're Christians, that's all changed, hasn't it? Before anything else, we are now slaves of Jesus. If you're a dad, you're a Christian dad. If you're a mom, you're a Christian mom. If you're a worker, you're a Christian worker. If you're a uni student, you're a Christian uni student. Christian first. Who you are is different. So how you will be what you are and what you do has got to change. If the good news about Jesus is true, then it changes who we are. What about our prayers, our prayer life? As you can see in verse 8 to 12, Paul prays gospel prayers. He thanks God for people's faith. He prays for opportunities to encourage people. Let me ask you, does that sound like your prayers? Are you praying at all? In the words of the great Corrie Ten Boom, don't just pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. We've been in lockdown for more than 100 days. Surely, Christians like us have no excuse. We have so much spare time. Surely, we were working on a vibrant prayer life. If you are praying regularly, it's very easy 
to fall into the habit of praying, God, bless me, bless my family, bless my job, amen. Isn't it? If you're someone who prays regularly, it's just so easy to slip into that, right? It's so easy to just begin to pray every day, God, thank you for saving me. Please help me to have a good day today. Amen. But in light of the gospel, that's just not good enough, is it? Not if people's eternal destiny is at stake. No, we need to be getting out those prayer diaries every day. We need to be praying for the people in our church. We need to be praying for the people in your Sunday group. You need to be thanking God for their faith in Him, praying that they would stand firm in Him, praying that you'll have a chance to encourage other believers. We need to be passionately in prayer for our family and our friends and our colleagues who don't yet know Jesus. We need to be fervently in prayer for missionaries and evangelists as they take the gospel out to the nations. We should be desperately praying for the 7,400 unreached people groups around the world so that the Lord of the harvest can send gospel workers there. Your FNPs should be packed full every fortnight as you have your church prayer meeting. Church, we need to be consistently praying passionate gospel prayers, gospel-shaped prayers. Identity, prayers, Thirdly, plans. What about our plans? As we see in verse 13, Paul's planning gospel plans. His life is directed and shaped by his passion for the gospel. Does that sound like your plans? Are your plans in life directed by and informed by and influenced by and shaped by your conviction in the gospel? I suspect that most of us follow the same plan as everyone else in the world, which is no particular plan at all. Life just presents itself to us and we just run from one emergency to the next. But again, if the gospel is true, that's just not good enough, is it? Not if the gospel is true. Not if the message about Jesus can actually save people from hell. Not if the message of the gospel can actually save people from eternal condemnation and separation from God. Christians, it's time to change plans. It's time to start planning gospel plans. Here's something radical. I heard a pastor a while ago. uh, He said that we live our lives in Sydney. We live our lives back to front. Most of us find a job in the career that we want. And then we find a house that we like. And then we go looking for a church. This pastor says, it's all wrong. It's back to front. You need to start off by finding a good church, a church where the Bible is taught faithfully, a church where you can serve people and be served. Next step, you find an affordable house nearby. And then you find a job that lets you pay for the house and lets you contribute to gospel ministry and serve in your church. Too radical, do you think? Too passionate? Is that too unrealistic? But if I believe the gospel is true, and if I do believe in the gospel, then surely, surely I've got to be at least making some gospel plans, right? Surely it's got to be making some difference in my life. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to spend my time encouraging other Christians. 
Surely I've got to have some plan for how I'm going to spend my money for gospel causes. Surely I've got to have some plan how I'm going to actually share the gospel with my friends and my colleagues and my family and my neighbors. Surely I've got to have some plans. Christian, let me ask you, when's the last time you invited a friend to church? When's the last time you sent this YouTube link to a mate? When's the last time you invited a friend to Sunday groups? Are you planning to do it? Or are you too busy running from one emergency to the next? New life. I think the logic of this passage is inescapable. You can't actually believe the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and then not be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about the gospel, you either don't believe it or you don't understand it. If you're not passionate about this gospel, it means you haven't got it. You don't get it. You don't understand fully what's happened. You can't believe this gospel and be silent. You can't believe this gospel and then be ashamed by it or bored by it or unaffected by it. It doesn't make any sense. You can't be a Christian and then be ordinary. If the gospel is true, it needs to be the driving force in our lives. It needs to be the overriding purpose of our lives. This needs to change our identity. It needs to change our prayers. It needs to change our plans. The gospel is God's powerful way of saving people. Do you believe that? No, no, I mean, do you actually believe that? Then let it change you. Let it the gospel, fill you with passion. May God, our Heavenly Father, transform us from the inside out as individuals and as a church family who are passionate for King Jesus and for His purposes. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you do have good news for us. We thank you that your Son, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and lived and died so that we can be right before you, so that we can be forgiven of our sins and rescued from your anger and your righteous judgment, so that we can have eternal life with you. Our Father, please help us to understand this message of the gospel. Please help us to believe it. Help us to know that identity is in you. Help us, Lord, to pray gospel prayers, to plan gospel plans. And Father, please transform us into passionate disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen.